Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Uh, and today, uh, the, the focus will be on the rise of Sri Lankan cricket. Again, one of those nostalgia-driven podcasts. And as a young boy growing in New Delhi, uh, Sri Lanka's rise was pretty much on my generation's watch. Uh, they had a lot of decent cricketers. And uh, for an introduction, honestly, I'll be... Uh, it's not an attempt to be disrespectful, but I remember coming back from school in, I think, in the winter of nine, uh, 1986 and planning to watch uh, Sharjah cricket. And uh, we had power loss, which was a pretty common happening in Delhi back, to, back in those days. And by the time power came back, around 3.30 or maybe close to 4, Sri Lanka, the game was over. And then my friend told me Sri Lanka were all out for 55. And the legend was Courtney Walsh getting 5 for 1. Uh, again, a lot of the dismissals, if you look back now, were bowlers, Lebroy and the Ratnaikes and uh, Santa Dimail, but you know that five for one stayed in West Indies and Sri Lanka. You know that's how you know why let facts get in the way, but it's a good story. And then ten years later, Sri Lanka wins the World Cup, and I was in the US. I couldn't believe because cricket coverage was pretty min- minimal. And when I was told, I don't even know how, and it was very hard to fathom. There were some world class players, but I did not see them win the cup. So this journey, along with the overall culture of Sri Lankan cricket, will be unpacked. And uh, I'm very lucky to have someone who can do this job probably better than anyone right now and a very well-known name in cricket writing. Andrew Fidel Fernando has taken time off on a Sunday night. It's like 9.37 p.m. in Colombo. Uh, an absolute honor, Andrew, to have you on this show and uh, go down this uh, nostalgia walk and talk uh, Rana Tunga and, and the boys. Yeah, th- thanks, Sakib. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, and thank you for reminding me of that, uh, that 55 all-out, I think. I mean, I, uh, it's one of those matches that I think it's, it's kind of like expunged from the records of Sri Lankan cricket. Like, no one wants to remember that. I've not heard anyone talk about it. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point that you make. That wasn't, it wasn't that long before the, uh, the 96 World Cup. In fact, a lot of the same players were involved in what became the, the 96 World Cup campaign. Yeah, and, and you know, I was a big fan of Roshan Mahanama, you know, because uh, uh, he was his ca- career was on the you know pretty much parallel with Azaruddin, and that time they were like the two best fielders in easily in the subcontinent. You know, you're not talking Logies and some of the Australian guys, but these two were very enigmatic, you know, and great fielders, and uh, he was part of the, you know those teams. And again, any Sri Lankan listener who is here, it was not just an attempt to bring the scorecard up, but it's just like how fascinating and how, what a turnaround this journey was for that group of guys. And you've written about that beautifully in an article for Crick Info, and I will use that as a baseline to get more out of you as the conversation progresses. But first things first, anyone who's on this show, what's your association with the game? When did you become a fan? And, and when did you know that you'll be professionally covering this and traveling around the world to do this? Yeah, I mean, um, my first kind of entry into fandom was watching Murali being no-balled at, uh, at the MCG in 1995. And it was kind of the first time in my life that I kind of, I, I was seven at the time. And uh, it, it kind of, suddenly cricket seemed like something that really mattered because all of these adults around me, my father in particular and, and other adults in, in my family, um, and auntie, for example, would just were just so incensed at what happened to Morley at uh, at Boxing Day '95. And I knew I sort of was aware of cricket and saw kids playing it on the streets and stuff before that, but it never really caught me as something that was uh, vitally important before before this incident. 
And then it was a good time to get into cricket because, of course, Sri Lanka won the World Cup uh, probably about four months later or not even four months later. So uh, it was the best time to, you know, begin that, that fandom journey. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been obsessed with it ever since. Uh, yeah, I watched uh, that, you know, all, all of Sri Lanka's cricket from test to, to one day as everything. Um, all through my uh, teenage years. And then I wasn't really planning on getting into a career in writing or journalism. But in 2009, I just managed to kind of like cold email Crick Info with some of the stuff that I'd written as a hobby for my university magazine at the time. And then two months later, I think I get a, an email back from Leslie Matthew, who was our feature and is still our features editor. Um, and he just said, have a go at writing something for us. And I did, and it went well. And then that eventually kind of like over a two-year period coalesced into a, a, a job with, uh, with Crick Info. So that's, uh, yeah, that was, that's basically my journey. I've been writing, I've been Sri Lanka correspondent for Crick Info for eight years since uh, August. Oh, yeah, since yesterday was my eight-year anniversary of being in Crick Info. So um yeah that, that's basically my uh, my journey through cricket fandom and eventually becoming a professional cricket writer um it's not really it, it still doesn't you know eight years on it doesn't feel like a real job it still feels a little bit fantastical to be able to you know call going to to grounds following um the team that you've watched from your childhood uh, and writing about them it still feels a little bit odd to call that your actual job yeah, and I'm sure anyone who's listening to this, again, you definitely don't need any introduction from my end, but even as fans who consume your writing, you are quite the prolific writer, but at the same time, the columns are very enjoyable and fresh. So keep them coming, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks this way. So Thank you. So let's talk about the Sri Lankan influence. You know, a lot has talk, been talked about in the past of the Caribbean island influence. That's how West Indies played their cricket. India, you know, has produced very technically sound batsmen over the years. So they say there's a lot of colonial influence on how we play our cricket. What is the Sri Lankan influence? Uh, just fill our listeners in. Where is the cricket charm and the cricket interest coming in? And who are the initial role models? Yeah, I mean, I think probably Sri Lanka started from a pretty similar place as India. I think a lot of the cricketers, you know, going back into the colonial period and immediately after, you know, especially Sri Lanka produced a lot of decent batsmen then. Um, I'm talking about like the Anuratennakons, the Michael Tisseras, um, which a lot of, you know, maybe uh, in, uh, the international cricket audience wouldn't have heard of, but, you know, at, at home are considered legends. And they're all described as kind of like technic technically correct and playing sort of those, uh, you know, if you almost like transpose the Mumbai school of batsmanship, um, that's kind of what Colombo batsmanship was like for a long time. Um, so that's, that's what the, there are one or two players that kind of broke that mold. Satasivam, uh, M. Satasivam, who was supposed to be this like phenomenally gifted batsman. Someone, if I had to go in time and just watch one person play, I might choose him actually, because there's so much lore around uh, how good he was. Um, and I just wanted to be able to see to my, see for myself and, and see, whether he was as good as people say, but uh, apparently, you know, some visiting West Indies players and said that uh, he was, uh, I think it was one of the three W's, I can't remember which one exactly, said that he was the, 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 the greatest kind of cricketing being on, on the earth at the time. 
So there were these kind of flashes of brilliance from Sri Lanka, even in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, largely, um, Sathasivan wasn't necessarily a technically correct player. He kind of was much more instinctive, but largely the, the tradition was to be quite instinctive, uh, to be quite uh, technically correct rather than instinctive and, and innovative. I think what Sri Lanka ended up learning after they became uh, test players, though, was that they're a small country. Like, they're not, they don't have the population to draw upon like an India or a Pakistan or even later on a Bangladesh would. Um, and they had to do things slightly differently in order to, they had to kind of shake up conventions in order to be competitive. And that's really what the 96 World Cup was all about, was Sri Lanka coming into that realization in kind of a full and dramatic way, um, realizing that if we play the same kind of cricket that our neighbors are playing or that their players, that uh, teams overseas are playing, we'll never actually... Uh, will never actually compete with them because they have all these other other advantages that we just don't have in terms of resources um, and in, in terms of population size and, and being able to draw from them. Um, and I think that's when Sri Lankan cricket, I think uh, in the early to mid-90s, Ranathunga was a big part of it, that when Sri Lankan cricket changed from being very technically correct and, and producing cricketers that came from like a private school or a, a strong school cricket background to kind of looking further afield to places like Martha, where Jai Surya came from, um, to maybe uh, bringing in a player like Murali, who obviously had a very unconventional action, um, which you know then became um, you know a Dilshan or a, or a, you know Jai Surya's batting technique obviously is also very unconventional, um, and then so that's I, I think Sri Lanka's cricket kind of found expression in. Yeah, in kind of its free-spiritedness. That's what Sri Lankan cricket is now has, has now become about. Um, we've always had kind of that uh, a strain of free-spiritedness. I think Dulip Mendis, who played in the 80s, and, and Aravinda De Silva, as, as, you know, as he was coming up through the 80s, also had that. But there was always this kind of feeling that technical correctness was, uh, was prized. Whereas after, through the mid-90s, that kind of went away completely and it just became about how many runs can you put on the board and can you do it in a fashion that hurts the opposition um, and can you bowl them out? I mean, those then became the only considerations. And then I think this kind of like uh, innovation, pre-spiritedness and the kind of general joy that, you know, Sri Lanka cricket is known for um, found its, its full expression then. Yeah, I, th I think pretty much uh, you covered a lot of ground there. Very informative and, yes. and, and, well, and well said. So let's uh, go back to, you mentioned something about the private school. So, so what is this infrastructure there for school level cricket or college cricket? What's the pipeline when you actually start seeing some of the talent coming through? And I'm talking about the initial stages. I'm sure now it's kind of well established. But how has that system evolved if there was such a pipeline? Yeah, I mean, so uh, traditionally it's been kind of the big Colombo schools and one or two candy schools, but the candy schools are even more kind of recent. So candy is the second biggest city, but it was really the Colombo schools that drove it. And there are two in particular, Royal College and St. Thomas's College. Um, and then with our, with, with the, in the eighties, Arjuna came from the school called Ananda College. Uh, which is one of the big Buddhist schools here. And that kind of came up. And then um, Roshan Mahanama came from a, a, a kind of a, a sister school called Nalanda College, another big Buddhist school. And then they came into the fray 
And it was kind of these, like, it, it was very much driven by that, um, that schoolboy cricket system. I think in Sri Lanka still, even now, school cricket is, is very closely followed. We have this, like, huge culture around it where um, every school has its big kind of rivalry with another school, and that match gets packed out by tens of thousands of people, more, more people than you see in a test match generally. We'll go and watch these, uh, these school cricket matches uh, and they're kind of like huge uh, social events. And it, it's really only been in kind of this century that it, like, you know, candy and, candy and, and goal schools have come online and really become uh, huge producers of cricket. And what generally happens now is that still the, the, the grassroots of Sri Lanka cricket is driven by schools, but there's a widening kind of, net of schools so there's a widening network of schools every year there are more and more schools that are producing decent cricketers uh and then everyone kind of like once you get to 17 or 16 and there's a really decent player playing in you know maybe like an up-and-coming uh, cricket school but not one that has like amazing facilities or resources then they will get kind of a scholarship into one of the best cricket schools and and get pulled into their cricket program there's a ton of sri Lankan cricketers that that, you know, Kusal Pereira, that happened to uh, Lahiru Kumara is another one. Uh, Dimut Karnaratna, all these players started off at like, you know, less, less well-known cricket schools and then kind of got thrown into um, to bigger ones. And that's generally how it works. Um, unfortunately, the issue is that once they graduate, what is a pretty, still a pretty decent school cricket system, there's no, there's no great senior system for them to graduate to because SLC's handling of domestic cricket has been beyond abysmal and continues to be abysmal. And um, the, the first class structure is kind of ailing and any kind of performances that the Sri Lanka national team put up. Um, both, I mean, in, in, on, in women's cricket, I think Sri Lanka cricket is doing a little bit better because they have fewer kind of traditional power brokers to deal with. But in men's cricket, certainly, anything, any achievements that the men's, men's team make is generally despite the domestic cricket structure not not because of it so what are the loopholes i'm sure you've covered this and uh, pardon my lack of knowledge at that front so is it mm-hmm. just the personnel who are running the system or is it you would like to see more cricket players former players working at the no, at the ground yeah, level I, yeah i mean that's a good question the the major so there are two major issues i think the first one is that there are too many teams so right now there are 23 or 24 first class cricket teams in Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka cricket is uh, obviously we're drawing from a limited uh, talent pool. There's only 21 million people on the Island and off that 21 million crickets never really kind of reach certain pockets of the Island has never produced cricketers. So you're not, you're not talking about 21 million. You're talking about slightly less than that. Um, And then on top of that, when you have such a vast, first class system and the first class system is tiered. So you've got a, a 14 team tier A and a 10 team tier B, but then some, some of the like older pros, some of the, the cricketers that have even played for Sri Lanka can sometimes be found in the tier B when they should all be kind of uh, concentrated into a much smaller and much more robust cricket first class system where the best, you know, hundred players max uh, in the island are playing against each other week after week. And the, the, the complaint that pretty much all Sri Lankan players who make it to the or young Sri Lankan players 
who get into the Sri Lankan team say is that the jump between first-class cricket and international cricket or jump between domestic cricket and international cricket is enormous. So in, almost invariably, it takes cricketers two or three years to get used to the rigors of international cricket. Whereas, you know, somewhere like India, you see youngsters coming into teams and maybe they, they're not uh, world-beating cricketers in their first year, but they do enough to stay in teams. They don't have to be invested in. And, there's, and if they kind of fail over four or five games, they'll get replaced by someone who will make it. So in Sri Lanka, we don't have that. We have someone like, say, even if Kusal Mendes, who I think is a fantastically talented and uh, kind of intelligent cricketer as well, you know, a, a smart player. But five years, I think it's four or five years into his career, into his international career, he's still trying to make that leap. Um, he was kind of maybe an exceptional case because he um, he came kind of straight from school cricket into international cricket. But others like Lahiri Thirmana, Dinesh Chandimal, they've all talked about how difficult it is to make that jump. And that's largely because, you know, when you're a batsman uh, in a first-class team, you can maybe see out the one or two decent bowlers they have on their side and then score heavily off the rest of them. And in international cricket, you you don't have that luxury. All five, all five bowlers who are bowling at you um, are, are very, very, very high quality and you kind of have to relearn batting almost. And that's, that's a very tough thing to ask players to do. The other thing is uh, the state of pitches isn't great either. Um, they are generally enormously spin-friendly. So Sri Lankan bowlers and batsmen come up in pitches that are completely unlike the pitches they play on in international cricket. And so it, it gets to a point when, when you combine the fact that um, there are too many players and, and there are easy runs and easy wickets on offer uh, and, and the fact that they're playing on, on pitches that are unlike the ones that they play on in international cricket, there are a lot of in, inconsequential runs and a lot of inconsequential wickets in first class and domestic cricket. So players who get a ton of wickets aren't necessarily the best in the league. They're just, they're just exploiting what is a system with a lot of loopholes, which is the word that you used. Um, and let me, this, yeah, this yeah. is again, quite interesting. So let me ask this again. Uh, maybe you already covered it, but uh, you say, you think this is like a nosedive of an existing system, which has gone down the drains, or you think the system was always the same. It just hasn't kept up at the time. Like other countries have improved because Sri Lanka has produced uh, since, you know, the period we're talking about till you know, the Jay Verdhane and the Sangakaras, a lot of mm-hmm. world-class players. So you think the challenge is a byproduct that just haven't kept up the pace with the rest of the world or uh, different times need uh, different corrective measures. So just trying to hit the nail in the coffin where these changes yeah, I, should take place. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. I think um, certainly when it comes to like one day in T20 cricket, um, Sri Lanka has not kept up with the times. Uh, when, when it comes to uh, first class cricket in particular, both the players you mentioned, Jawadhan and, and Sangakara, have come out and said first class cricket is worse now than when we were coming through. And like appreciably worse, not slightly worse, substantially worse. Um, and Jaiwadhan actually came to the SLC with like a plan of how to kind of um, uh, refurbish first class cricket or reorganize first class cricket in a way that deals with a lot of the issues that I talked about. But such are the politics in, in Sri Lankan cricket that that never came to fruition and that that plan kind of was never used. Um, and he did that 
I, I'm pretty sure of his own. Uh, he was asked to do it by the board, but he uh, he's someone who's now gone on to co- coach Mumbai Indians to two out of three successful IPL seasons, and yet does not have a, a, a coaching position in the Sri Lanka board because um, he feels so alienated after kind of experiences like this when he went to them with a plan and then they uh, it got rejected and completely thrown out. Um, so that that's the general you know thinking is that it's actually got worse. And if you talk to cricketers who came up in the aughts or in the late 90s, they'll tell you first-class cricket was more competitive back then uh, than it is now. And, and then you, if you look at kind of, let's take T20 cricket for an example. Uh, Sri, Lanka's, Sri Lanka hosts abysmal T20 cricket tournaments. Every year, domestic cricket tournaments. They are, um, they are over, they're overwrought. They have too many teams. Uh, or they are only played over the course of two or three weeks. When you, you, know, when you compare that to an eight-week IPL, it's completely insufficient um, to, to prepare players for the rigors of T20 cricket and, and to get them used to uh, the way T20 cricket is played at a high level. Um, it's completely uh, not fit for purpose. And, and yeah, in, on the, on, particularly on the limited overs fronts, Sri Lanka definitely has been left behind by the rest of the world. No, that's uh, that's quite interesting because uh, that's where the financial health of most board is. Uh, the white ball cricket is generating, and some say will eventually subsidize the red ball cricket because that's the money, uh, that's the money making uh, component of uh, you know of all boards. So let's uh, take this conversation forward. As far as talent goes, is cricket competing with any other sport in Sri Lanka for the youth's attention, or is is this the primary sport that you see on the streets? Yeah, no, absolutely. Cricket is still, uh, by a huge distance, the, the favorite uh, sport on the island. Rugby is kind of a massively, massively distant second. Um, and yeah, there's nothing else that really can even challenge cricket. Though you don't just see it on street streets, you see it in paddy fields and in, um, on, on you know, school grounds all over the country, from urban centers to, to rural parts of the country. It's, yeah, there's no, there's nothing that can challenge cricket. And um, there's kind of been like a national uh, period of, I guess, like mourning for, for the standards that the Sri Lanka team set for such a long time and then haven't quite been able to meet, uh, particularly in the last five years. But despite that, it's still, there's no other sport that can, that can challenge cricket. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, that's good uh, for the health of cricket. Uh, we need the popularity to 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 sustain and and grow. So uh, again, before we get to you know Ranatunga and you know the team and that decade we talked about, uh, another observation is uh, anyone who's followed Sri Lankan cricket uh, from an international lens, like I have, there have been a lot of uh, common last names. I don't know if they were relatives or brothers, but that was a pretty uh, common trend. So, what attributed that? If it was all family members, or it was just uh, same names but not related? So, throw some light on that. Yeah, there were a few family members, but I think Sri Lanka generally we just have um, a lot of similar family surnames, and so that's that's more the reason why uh, you have you know at one point you had like three Jawadanas in the team right now I think you have like a uh, two or three Fernandos in the mix you have a few Pereiras all the time 
uh, De Silva's as well, or Silva's and De Silva's, but very rarely are they related. Um, I think beyond the Wetumunis, who, who, you know, the one or two of whom played for Sri Lanka, and who else? I think Ranathunga, one of the Ranathunga brothers, or maybe two of the Ranathunga brothers played, um, apart from Arjuna, I mean. Uh, and then, yeah, I can't think of too many brothers who who played for Sri Lanka, particularly. Oh, right now, uh, one in the, so there's one uh, right now. One Indu Hasaranga is the brother of Chaturanga de Silva. And although they don't share the same last name, they're brothers. Um, yeah, I, uh, one Indu Hasaranga, his full name is one Hasaranga de Silva, I think. But he doesn't go by de Silva. So there's all sorts of complexities here. Sure. There are, yeah, there are lots of players who have the same last name. But aren't yeah. brothers, but some who don't have the same last name. Yeah, that was more uh, a cur- cur- curiosity yeah. question, you know. Again, yeah. and, and my rec- recollections are mainly from the eighties. So, so yeah, so, oh, yeah. That, so the is definitely weren't related. <laughs> no, they even had a different different spelling, I believe. Right. So, uh, if mm. I'm not mistaken. So yeah, Ratnaikas, Yeah, they shared the new ball attack. So uh, yeah. let's let's uh, get to the era now we've been talking about. And before the Ranatunga era started, it was Dilip Mendes who was in charge of uh, Sri Lankan cricket. So talk about his influence and how much of a catalyst he was in that run. Yeah, I mean, I think he was someone who was one of those players who taught, who taught a little bit differently than, than everybody else. Um, challenged Sri Lanka to try and play a little bit differently. I guess that was his own game as well, was to always be aggressive and not to kind of take a backward step. I remember this uh, this match in Lords, the first first time Sri Lanka ever played in Lords. Uh, I'm pretty sure Dilip was captain in that match, and um, England, the England team just came to came to the, the match with this idea that okay, we're just going to bounce them out. They're kind of this unheralded subcontinent team. We're just going to go in there and just bowl short at them and and uh, and bounce them out and. Dilip Mendes kind of hooked both of them into the stands um, all day, basically, on, on, on day two of that match or, or maybe day one. And, uh, and got 100 and, and Sri Lanka performed really well. They only drew the, drew the game. It was kind of a, a flat surface. And Sri Lanka didn't have the bowling at the time. But at least on the batting front, Sri Lanka were able to, to put up good scores uh, fairly regularly on both at home and, and away from home. Uh, and I think... You know that that kind of um, that kind of maverick spirit then you know was was uh, something that Arvind de Silva inherited as well, and then later on you know Sanajaya Surya and and uh, and all of those players much later on. In fact, Dilip might have been. There's all there's all sorts of like debates about who came up with the strategy to open with uh, Sanajaya Surya and Kalwitarana and kind of be aggressive at the top 15 um, in the first 15 overs of a one day match during the 1996 World Cup. And, but the person I've most heard it attributed to is Dulip Mendes. So he, could have, he, was, uh, he was a manager of the team at the time. So he could have been really the brains behind one of the biggest transformations, not just of Sri Lankan cricket, but of um, one-day cricket as well. Sure. And another memory of mine uh, following the trifecta of uh, India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka back in those days was uh, for a young cricket nation, Sri Lanka's fielders were quite good. I, I noticed that. And again, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, I just want to ask what your recollection is. If, if the fielding was good, was there a particular reason why they were ahead of the curve? I, I figured uh, it was in, back in those days in Sharjah, at least seemed like more than Manama, more than few men can field. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, there was Mahanama, especially, particularly in the mid-90s, there's Mahanama, there's Upul Chandana, who's a fantastic fielder as well. Uh, Ruan Kalpage was another one. Uh, Murali was generally pretty good, um, especially off his own bowling. Sanath was good. So, yeah, they were quite a good, uh, uh, quite, I, I don't really know what that comes down to. I, I don't know why at, in that era, Sri Lanka had so many more good fielders than Pakistan and India. That's, that's not something I've kind of thought about that often. Mm. Um, perhaps it's, it might come down to uh, where they kind of learned their cricket, but you know, I, I wouldn't be able to say for sure. But you're right that, um, that definitely at the time and for much of the last 15, you know, probably last 20, 25 years, Sri Lanka has kind of thought of itself as the best fielding team in Asia. It hasn't been the case over the last four or five years, but uh, before that, they were kind of consistently thought of themselves as that. Uh, yeah, India, India has, I think, taken over that mantle. I mean, Indian fielding has yeah, come of age in the last two decades. Yeah. It's just gotten better and better. So, yeah. so let's uh, come to the meat of the conversation, uh, the 96 run. And in that article you wrote, for Crick Info, I'm going to just read that excerpt, and that's just brilliant. And uh, that just stayed with me. So, quote, that Ranatunga was dead certain a team of part-time bank clerks, insurance men, and salespeople would win a World Cup suggests both vision and self-delusion. Because while it was reasonable to expect Sri Lanka to turn heads, there was little to suggest they could lift the trophy, end of quote. So, yeah, this is just, this, this is something that can go on the top of a documentary. I mean, so, so elaborate on this. I mean, this uh, group of cricketers and pretty much they all became superstars in their own right after this. But uh, someone who hasn't lived through that era, uh, if you can just, you know, uh, provide more context of the backgrounds and how cricket was not a serious sport, it, it can, you know, at least you can think uh, everybody had a bank job or they were not playing cricket 12 months a year, which is the case now. Professional cricketers are always busy. So however yeah. you may feel, uh, throw some light on this because this state, this was very powerful for me. Yeah, I mean, it was partly a result of the fact that um, Sri Lanka, while it was probably the most popular sport in the in the nineties, it hadn't like fully embraced it in the way that we have now. Um, so it, it wasn't as if cricket was especially marketable. Um, and Sri Lanka always, you know, probably uh, the, the public were hugely surprised themselves that Sri Lanka managed to win a World Cup when they did. Uh, because if you look at the, the record leading up to that World Cup win, uh, there weren't that many victories. You know, I think Sri Lanka won only a third of their, their ODIs between the 92 and 96 World Cups. Uh, they weren't an especially high-scoring team when it came to batting. They didn't really have any bowling. You know, uh, Chamin Vast was the one world-class bowler that they had in their team. Uh, Morley was very much learning his craft, um, had only taken, I mean, this is someone who would go on to become the, the, the most successful ODI uh, wicket taker of all time. But at the time, I think he was taking one wicket a, a game on average, which wasn't, you know, especially promising. And so it was, and the, the other side to this is that when you play cricket in Sri Lanka, you don't, uh, you didn't get a, a full-time salary. So you could, you would get your match fees and whatever that would be enough to, to tide you over for part of the year, but you would have to play, you would have to work in a bank or you'd have to work 
in uh, in one of these organize in one of these companies that would kind of willingly have cricketers on, and, and they did. Uh, mercantile cricket was uh, was a big thing. Were, back were then. these but, were these real jobs? Because even in India, a lot of uh, players in the eighties were employed with the banks. But uh, again, my understanding was they were not real jobs. They were like designated positions. And no, so so they the vast majority of the time they were real jobs because the the companies needed value out of them as employees and not just as cricketers, right? So, uh, for example, even I mean even more recently, I mean Rangana Herath now works at the bank, like he works at Sampath Bank. That's his that's his genuine job. Uh, he he. He, if you go to a bank and you need something done, Rangan Herat could be the person that helps you, uh, helps you do that. I don't know what his designation is at the bank, but that's that's uh, that's very much his his livelihood right now. Um, and that's the that was the case for a lot of cricketers in the nineties. Um, you know, going back twenty twenty five years before you know Rangan Herat came through, it's uh, they were genuinely working jobs at at these places. Um, and then they would be given leave to go and play for Sri Lanka, but it was leave from your job, not, you know, not, uh, it wasn't just a ceremonial position. Mm. They, they were genuinely employed at these places. And again, uh, going back to 30 years in time, Ranatunga was a fascinating figure. I always thought along with Javed Miyadad, he was one of the few guys who looked very cool out there uh, in terms of like a complicated chase. A lot of times Sri Lanka didn't win those matches, but he seemed like he's reading the game really well. He's pacing his innings. And uh, is that the impression you got while you interviewed? I'm sure you talked to so many players before you wrote that masterpiece of an article because that's such an homage. So what were Ranatunga's strengths? I mean, uh, let's talk about his batting to a younger generation because to me, he seemed like he's reading the game really well. He's taking these, pushing these nudges, ones and twos, and then he could unleash. But he was, he seemed like a very thinking batsman, if I may have repeated myself. Yeah, times. I mean, he, he was, he's very, he was, he just understood kind of, he felt the pulse of the game. Like he's one of those batsmen who knew which occasion to seize, which bowler to target, when someone was tiring, when um, he never seemed, as you said, never seemed overawed by anything. Even if Sri Lanka didn't go on to, to win that match, the next game he would play this perfect hand. Uh, and would would ta- would pace his his finish perfectly. And um, I think the biggest thing about Ar- 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 about Arjuna though is the biggest thing about Arjuna was uh, his ability to see see potential in other players and then bring that out. I think his leadership was of more consequence in the end than his his own batting, which was fantastic during that World Cup. He averaged something like. His average was over 100 and his strike rate was way up there as well, if I remember correctly. And so he had a fantastic World Cup. But, um, and I but think after was, Mendes and the Ratanaikes left, I think it was more like his team, right? Because he was the senior most guy. Something similar to Clive Lloyd was with the West Indies. Like Even if he was a captain, he was such a mentor to all those guys because he was slightly older. Yeah, the, the Clive Lloyd um, comparison is, is a good one because Clive Lloyd, like Ranatunga, kind of, expanded the search in the Caribbean for great players, for players who could contribute to victories. That's very much what Ranatunga did as well. I mean, Sanat Jaisuria was someone that he, has, he had championed for six or seven years before finally Jaisuria came good in the 96 World Cup and then you know, went on to become a great of the game. Um, but you know, Ranatunga saw that potential in him very early and was 
pushing for Jai Suri to be included, to be promoted up the order, for to play a bigger role in the team. Because although Jai Suri was an underperforming player for a long time, Ranatunga kind of knew the potential in him. And Jai Suri is someone who comes from the south, which uh, and, a, and a town called Martha, which hadn't really produced a cricketer like that before. You know, he he didn't come from one of these fancy schools. He came from uh, and he played what in Sri Lanka is known as you know Pulladi cricket, which is like you know, uh, slogging, basically, uh, which the technically, technically correct school of Sri Lankan batting would have kind of laughed at for such a long time. But Ranatunga believed in breaking down these kind of old biases and hierarchies and making sure that cricket, uh, basically finding players that would find a way to win for him. And Jai Surya became one of those players. Is he still and, the most important captain, according to you, in Sri Lanka's most Yeah, figure? absolutely. I think, I mean... In terms of impactful captains, yes, for sure. Without a doubt, there's no one who can... I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Mahela Jawadhan as well. I think strategically he was much better than Ranathunga. Ranathunga wasn't necessarily a great strategic mind on the field. What he had was that kind of man management, that ability to see potential and to find a way to get it realized. Um, and that was also the case with Murali, um, whom he backed through all those kind of difficult years when really had uh, those issues with uh, with his action being called, and so for those things, I think there's no there's no doubt that uh, that Arjuna was the most the most um, yeah impactful and kind of in some ways transformative uh, captain that Sri Lanka's ever had. In the past, like uh, again, a lot of uh, Indian writers, Indian fans have said, you know, under sort of Ganguly, India uh, found a backbone, which I certainly don't disagree with, but at the same time. Uh, just to be aggressive isn't, you know, doesn't symbolize if someone is playing the cricket aggressively or not. So Gavaskar and Kapil Dev and others did have a backbone. But uh, in your view, how was Anatunga in the face of aggression when played with especially Australian cricket and some of the teams that were very in-your-face in kind of attitude? So was he someone who would just, you know, play to his strengths or was, was he someone who would just also unleash some aggression? What are your observations when you interviewed or watch, you know, some of his cricket and talk to some of his teammates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think he was very calculated. Like he, he never, as you said, never really lost his cool. He was always, he never got angry. He would sometimes maybe pretend to be frustrated or annoyed or not, maybe not frustrated, but pretend, pretend to be irked by something. But that was always in order to get what he wanted out of that situation. Like he's since gone on to become a politician. We won't talk about his politics, but he, like he's all, he was kind of acting like a politician on the field uh, back then, and he would he would approach someone and and kind of uh, he, in his confrontations with umpires, it's not like he ever flew off the handle. He just he just went so far enough to push push the right buttons to get the result that he wanted, and that was very much the case with that Australia team. I think like no one got under Australia's kin, skin. Hmm. As much as Arjuna Ranathunga in that era. And I was so, so, I mean, my first trip to Australia to cover cricket in 2012, I was just fascinated to learn what the Australian response to Ranathunga had been, which was like they just saw him as almost like a, their aspects. Not some of them kind of, uh, some Australians didn't see him as, a, as, a, uh, as an antagonistic figure, but many saw him as kind of a, a huge villain in, 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 uh, in cricket because I think that was the effect that he had on this, what became this hugely successful Australian team. I mean, 
one of the great teams of all time. And, uh, and, but in that era, there was no one who kind of got. Yeah. They accused him of gamesmanship on quite a few occasions. I mean, and, and he was guilty of the gamesmanship. Like there was no, there's no doubt that he, he pushed the, the bounds of what is acceptable for a captain to do. But he did it in such a way that was that uh, that got him what he wanted, and he was he was one of those kind of win at all costs kind of uh, kind of players. And I mean, I don't think that many of the the things that Arjuna did on the field were should be replicated by anyone else. But the fact that he did them at a time when Sri Lanka were had all these structural challenges in cricket, they were a far poorer team. They were a far less uh, well-off team in terms of like facilities, and and uh, and for him to he needed to do that. He needed to push these buttons in order to buy his team some level of parity with uh, opposition such as like like those of like Australia. Sure. I remember, you know, I remember in that ninety-five, ninety-six uh, tour of Australia, Sri Lanka were practically bullied. I mean, you know, players would come and and abused and sledged Sri Lankan players who often didn't speak great English and it would be down to Arjuna to kind of fight back and and that's what he that's what he brought to the table was this kind of like supreme confidence and this kind of like conniving and um, and I guess like underhand nature to him as well but it was all done in the you know to the uh, in order to try and buy his team who were huge underdogs in virtually every uh, every battle that they played with Australia, they were massive underdogs. Oh, it's fascinating the whole the, the whole David versus to... Goliath. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, he was just trying to even the scales a bit. But yeah, you can't. No, again, uh, as a fan uh, to a fan, I know you're a writer, but uh, let's uh, take the writing hat off for a second. So, in in your you know recollection of writing and covering cricket, and then of course you've piled up. Lot of research that goes into it. Do you think uh, if the same tactics were done by an Ian Chappell or a Tony Gregg, they were they could have been more glorified? But do you think if it an Arjuna Ranatunga was doing it again, like you yourself said, there was gamesmanship. But a lot of time, gamesmanship in other sports have been glorified. Like Jordan and the Bulls, I've watched them. You know, do these mental edges versus the Miami Heat and the New York Knicks. You know, sparking off comments and you know, and the Jordan's legend is so big that we even talk about today that he's the greatest of all time. So kind of a complicated question. I mean, but uh, do you think who's yeah. doing it also matters? I mean, in your view? It's, yeah, it does. I think, I think it, it does. I've never thought about what Ranatunga's tactics in, in the hands of a, let's say like a Ricky Ponting or a, I, I think what the case was, was that, um, Australia were, were starting, they, you know, they, uh, when Ranatunga was playing, Steve Waugh wasn't uh, the captain for most of Ranatunga's captaincy. Steve Waugh came right at the end. So the whole, Australia hadn't still come into the full realization of their mental disintegration tactics, but there were strains of it under Taylor. And Ranatunga, at least when I watched him, was the one player who would kind of fight fire with fire. If you watch Ranatunga playing other teams, when they played India, he didn't use those. He wasn't, he wasn't the same Ranatunga that, that he was when he was playing Australia. It was just when he thought, you know, these guys are going to hammer us verbally. We have to, I have to find a way to fight back against them. 
that's what brought out kind of the nastiest version of Ranatunga. So it's, this is, that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I, think, well, I think your answer is pretty good. I mean, I'm satisfied because then it's, yeah. uh, it kind of tells you, you pretty much dance to different tunes posed by different oppositions. So you don't have to turn that switch on unless it's needed. So when you're playing India, you're playing on, on a different scale. And then when you're challenged by, say, an Australian side that is known for sledging, you do something which gets under their skin. So I guess that's the whole Ganguly Australia thing that Indian fans always talk about that, you know, he gave that backbone, he just stayed them back. And uh, some of it is, I guess, you know, it works uh, if it's natural to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, there are some fantastic Ranatunga press conferences um, where he's kind of like, especially when Sri Lanka have won, where he'll go and gloat. And, uh, but also, again, do it in such a way that it might earn him an advantage to the next time these two teams meet, right? Like all Ranatunga's comments had some kind of like long-term uh, ploy to them. There was, he was always plotting. And, uh, and it was, I mean, uh, generally, the, I mean, we, the, the mid-90s was an era of relative South Asian solidarity uh, in a way that, is not, that does not exist anymore right now. Uh, and hasn't existed for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years at least. So when he was playing other subcontinent nations, you definitely did see a different side of Arjuna than, than when you saw him play, say, Australia and to a lessening, uh, lesser extent, England as well. So yeah, let's go back to that, uh, that piece you wrote about uh, Ranatunga. And uh, there's something very funny there, which again, you know, <laughs> I want you to describe more. That sometime when during chasing totals, he would go back and take a nap and then wake up. I mean, that's how cool is that? <laughs> I mean, is that a normal Rana Tunga happening? Uh, you know, after a hot day on the field, just take a quick 20, 40, 20 to 40 minute power nap. And, you know, there could be two wickets down. <laughs> I mean, he does seem the napping sort. So, uh, yeah, I mean, apparently, apparently this is what he used to do. And he just be, he. Uh, there'd be a couple of wickets down and he still wasn't getting into his pads and everyone's like, what are you doing? But I think at that stage, uh, there was such an aura around him in that dressing room that no one really questioned him. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody believes, apart from Arjun, I don't think anybody believes that Sri Lanka could win that 1996 World Cup. Um, and I, I say that genuinely because I talked to so many journalists who covered that tournament and they were like, yeah, no one, including us, gave Sri Lanka like a, a hope in hell of winning that tournament. There were so many good teams around at the time. There was, uh, you know, Shane Warne and Mark Waugh piling up hundreds for fun in their, uh, in their group matches. Uh, you know, Pakistan was still a, a very decent team. And, um, and there was, no one really thought that Sri Lanka could pull it off. I mean, there was, there was so much doubt, but then... Ranatunga from before the tournament had been saying, no, we're going to win this. We're going to win this. We're going to win this. And he had such a clear plan as to how to go about it. Yeah. And I think um, that just unshakable confidence, un confidence had to seep into the rest of the team. And it, it can't, uh, it, it seemed like it was like everyone else just looked at him and thought, oh, maybe, maybe we can do this. 
No, absolutely. And I mean, again, I have so many questions, but in, you know, even a one hour podcast, you can't do justice to the factors that have attributed to the World Cup win. But I do have some follow-up questions on the appointment of one Dave Watmore. So talk about his influence on that run. What have you heard from other players? What have what are your observations? Because his partnership was quite legendary and quite time timely for the Sri Lankan team. Yeah, I think what Watmore brought was just like a structure within the team. Like this is what we so like when it came to training, when it came to getting the best out of the players, all the I think Watmore was is one of those coaches who can come into a, a talented but underperforming team and just improve, you know, thirty forty percent what each player is doing, and that's definitely what he did. And Alex Contouri, the the physiotherapist. Um, uh, was responsible for a lot of that as well because they'd come in and they'd look at one player and think, how can we turn this bowler from someone who takes two or three wickets to someone who threatens to take five wickets in, in a lot of matches? How do we do that? How do we improve his fitness? What skills does he need to work on? And they kind of thought about each player in a very methodical way and left the kind of big picture planning to Arjuna Arjuna was kind of the visionary of the of the of the outfit of the whole operation, but the the micromanaging stuff, like the small scale stuff that helped players improve, that's what what more was good at, and um, and that really, yeah, I mean, over, across the team, everyone just suddenly just raised their games ten twenty percent, even the players who weren't you know necessarily superstars, like say like Kumar Damasena he would be, you know, 10, 20% better than he used to be because what more brought in specific plans, specific training regimes, specific things that he wanted Dharmasena to do. And then Dharmasena would go and do that. And then it, just the way that what more helped everyone fit into that team and, and raise their games a bit. Um, that I think is, is uh, what strength and, and legacy in that, in that match, because I don't think he came in and said, look, uh, I'm going to overturn this whole thing and I'm going to overhaul the system. What, what he did was just take something that was already there um, and let Arjuna and, and the rest of the kind of brains trust do a lot of the planning. And again, those who don't know, so how timely was the association? Did he just come before the World Cup? Did he spend a good few months prior to it with the boys? Or what was I the assignment think, like, if uh, you remember? I think, I think he came uh, before... I think he was hired in the middle of 95, if I'm not mistaken. So he had less than a year with the team before they won the World Cup. Uh, but he did have like a decent amount of time so that he could kind of build some proper structural things and build some systems in to the way Sri Lanka played and trained um, before they went to the World Cup. Um, and then obviously he became like a massively trusted. Once, once his his methods started to really yield results. Then he became a massively trusted coach and Sri Lanka, you know, did um, even after the world cup, they had some very, very good years in, in 97 and 98 as well. And, uh, and what more was around for those. Yeah. You know, a lot of your cricket teams are like governments, right? Because uh, there's no way to sometimes see the hard work. It's all about process. Like Dhoni has been a big advocate and a lot of time you don't see the fruit of the process, maybe a few years down the road because you're building something. So let's talk yeah. about the man of the moment here. The biggest playoff run in, in Cricket World Cup history, Arvinda De Silva. And the guy changes, switches a bat during the World Cup. I mean, how insane is that? So talk, yeah. talk, about, talk, talk about, first of all, like, you know, what have you heard about? Why did he change the bat? And it was such a, because these, all these athletes are so finicky about their equipment. 
even at club level here, when I play, some of my friends, they get their bats from England and they, they don't tinker with their bats. And now you're talking about a legend changing, going for a heavier bat during one of the biggest tournaments of his life and comes out on top. Yeah, I mean, I think Arinda was one of those players who, who was just like a huge experimenter. And you can see that if you watch like, you know, uh, like a compilation of Arvinda's best shots or his best innings or whatever, um, you'll see that he has a different stance from series to series, from era to era. It's just, he was just like not afraid of changing what he was doing to the extent where you wonder, like, was he getting bored at some point? Like, was he, was he just changing what he was doing out of boredom? But then I think in 95, he went to, um, to Kent um, and played a county season there. I think the first Sri Lankan player ever to get a, a county contract. I'm not 100% on that, but I'm definitely, you know, one of the first. And then I think there, because Sri Lanka, so for a long time, Sri Lanka didn't have, ha- have access to the kind of like high quality cro- coaching and kind of the systems and the, the structure that you needed in a professional outfit. Um, but then when he went to Kent, he got that for a, for a period of three or four months. And then he just became a lot more solid player. But then that kind of streak of experimentation, and this is where like the genius of Arvinda comes in, where you know, he's unafraid, that fearlessness. Um, he's one of the few players in the mid-90s who would come, who would come, to, the, uh, come to the crease and the first ball that was bowled to him could legitimately have a chance of going for six because if he saw the ball, like he, he was always fearless and he never was daunted by occasions. And he was undaunted by the idea of changing a bat as well. He saw it work, working for Sachin. So one of the reasons why he, he tried a, a heavier bat because he, he was like watching Sachin and seeing, oh, he's scoring a lot of runs and he just has to touch the ball. He just has to time the ball, doesn't have to have a big follow through, doesn't have to, um, to, to swing hard at it to get it to go for four. And, uh, and that was the reason why he tried the, the heavier bat. And he went to a net and, he, and it felt good. And he was like, okay, cool. This is what I'm doing for this... Uh, during this tournament. And so, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's part of his, his makeup, I guess. Not, he, he's never struck me as someone who, t- who took cricket that seriously, right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't someone that was ever, even when he was going through very low ebbs and, and Arvind had quite a few low ebbs in his career where he was getting, you know, uh, single figure scores for several matches. He never seemed like the kind of player who was getting down on himself because of that. He always had that fearlessness and he always played the same way. Um, and I think it's just, it's just like the, that, that mental weight that a lot of players carry about their game. Aravinda just didn't have. And which is why in, you know, this, as you said, one of the greatest playoff runs in 66 of, I think, 47 balls in that semifinal, what, my favorite Sri Lankan innings ever. Yeah, with the um, Calcutta crowd, you know, roaring and supporting. Yeah, the I mean, that's just absolutely. one for two. That's kind of, uh, yeah, that's what stories yeah. are built on. Yeah, I mean, just the context of that innings. I mean, Sri Lanka had got to the semifinal based on the, the, all the hype had been about the openers and how they were getting them these insane starts. And in the first over in that match, both openers were out. Arvinda was out there. The guy who was kind of the middle order, uh, the, the top order guarantee or the top order anchor Asanka Gurusinghe was out not long after that. So Sri Lanka were 30 for three or 30 odd three. Um, and then Arvinda plays this like ridiculous counter-attacking innings. Does not take stock of the fact that 
there are 100,000 fans out there. India's right on top. Like, he just does not care. He just goes out and plays this, like, incredibly, incredibly aggressive innings uh, for the time and then kind of forces India to change their plans and make, uh, make changes in their bowling plans that they weren't planning to make and then, and then still gets Sri Lanka's middle order that rapid start that they were used to all through the tournament. And then it was mm. just a case of Arjuna and Ashan Tilkaratna and, uh, and Roshan Mahanama coming in, kind of consolidating on the momentum that, uh, that Arvinda had built. And, uh, and then in the final, like not just his, his batting, he's, uh, he scored 100 in the final, obviously, but he also took, uh, I think, two wickets and, and a couple of catches as well. It was it three wickets? I'll, um, and um, and contributed massively in in the field and with the ball as well. Yeah, I mean the um, argument could be made, you know, his batting and fielding both, you know, on its own were like match-winning performances. Yeah, absolutely. On the on their own, I I mean, I don't think I think it's pretty fair to say that there's no better knockouts if you look at like knockouts performances in world, across all World Cups. I don't think there's a way to. To, to top uh, Arvinda's in that semi-final and that final. Yeah, I don't think many would argue, yeah. So let's uh, wrap this up with a couple of questions. Uh, of course, any team that wins a World Cup of that magnitude, this fairy tale ending, of course, there was a lot of work that was put into and the vision that Ranatunga had, the grooming of the youngsters, what more, and then Jasuria, De Silva, everybody playing their part. Uh, but this is also a team that had like uh, some, you know, I mean, I don't want to say mutiny, but, you know, in 94, when uh, De Silva became captain after Arjuna and Damika Ranatunga were dropped and then Mahanama became captain. So was all the political thing was against the board? Did it affect the players' harmony coming into this? Or was this a very tightly fit unit that they got along? I think like by the time 96 rolled around, there was no question that Arjuna was the captain because they'd seen the way Arjuna had backed morally in... Uh, in Boxing Day on, on, at the MCG when really was no balls. And definitely during the course of that series, Arjuna's like, leadership became ironclad and everyone was willing to play for him. Uh, apart from maybe Gurusinghe. Gurusinghe was the one who kind of fell out with, with Arjuna later on. But um, by almost everybody else was, was like very much in behind Arjuna's vision for this team. Um, before that, I mean, Sri Lanka's cricket wasn't actually that strung up by politics in the early 90s because it hadn't become big enough yet to attract all this like huge political attention. So, um, so the, the, the team, I'm, I genuinely, I can't, I, I haven't looked into why, uh, well, Arvind and Arjuna were dropped over fitness issues. I think that was in 94. Uh, and that was controversial, but that controversy was kind of eventually overcome. Um, and I'm not sure Roshan Mahanama kind of ever really saw himself as a as a long-term captaincy option. Um, Arjuna always seemed like the person destined to kind of lead Sri Lanka to um, to this kind of triumph or to the next, at least the next next phase in their in their development. And how was uh, the De Silva Ranatunga friendship off the field? Were they I think they were pretty, pretty good friends. Uh, I wouldn't say like on the Sangha Mahela level, but uh, definitely Arvinda was also one of these players who never really wanted or seemed like he wanted captaincy. 
and he never seemed to really en enjoy it. What he was really good at is, was being Arvind the strategist, right? So Arvind, uh, so Arjuna strategist. So Arjuna wasn't necessarily a great tactical mind um, when it came to like the kind of minutia of of, uh, of captaining a team of who should we bring on next? What what kind of field should we deploy? Um, how do we attack this particular batsman? Arjuna wasn't necessarily good at any of that stuff. Arvind, the meanwhile, had a great great cricketing brain, who and and likes doing that kind of thinking, but wasn't necessarily on board with like the, all the other stuff of leading a team. You know, going to press conferences, um, managing all the players, kind of coming up with an overall big picture vision. That wasn't necessarily his thing. So they, on the field at least, they meshed pretty well because. Sometimes, I mean, there are stories that journalists have, that you know, journalists who covered that era of Sri Lanka told me, where Arjuna would just, when things weren't going well for Sri Lanka on the field, Arjuna would go off the field, and Arjuna would come in, he would fix the field, he'd get the right bowler in, he'd turn things around, and then Arjuna would come back in, and that was kind of all done fairly seamlessly, without Arjuna feeling like you know he should be captain or. Arjuna feeling like his toes had been stepped on. So that partnership worked pretty well. I don't know what they were like off the field so much. I, I've never heard that they were, they were not good with each other, but definitely on the field, that seemed like a, a pretty kind of well-oiled partnership, um, which is all that kind of really matters in the end. Yeah, you're absolutely right. On the field is what this is all about. That's why we're talking a nostalgic event that shaped Sri Lankan cricket uh, more than, what, 24 years ago. So, Andrew, I know we, I mean, I can go on forever, but I know it's getting pretty late there. So, thank you for coming on the show. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation and I hope uh, this was worth your time. We hopefully can have you back sometime, depending on your availability, but I'm sure the listeners will be thrilled once this show is released to hear your views on the absolute epic run of Rana Tunga and team and all the way to the World Cup final. Thank you so much, Sakib. I massively enjoyed myself uh, as well. 96 is the is an easy way to get, I think, any Sri Lankan um, in a good mood. So you've, uh, I'm definitely feeling good about myself after having been on here.